Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. We're going to continue our series format here on War Stories, shifting from the European theater, D-Day specifically, is what we just spent a little bit of time on, to the Pacific theater of the Second World War. Now, I played around with a couple different areas to focus on, but at the end of the day, kept getting drawn back to the first offensive ground action in the Pacific. So this episode marks part one in a series on the Guadalcanal campaign. And to kick that off, we're going to talk about Private First Class Edward Ahrens of Alpha Company 1st Raider Battalion and his actions during a fight in the Battle of Tulagi. Now, because this is the first episode in a multi-part series, I'm going to spend a little more time today talking high-level, kind of setting the stage for the Guadalcanal campaign. If you already know that story or just aren't interested, you can skip ahead to around the 15-minute mark when we'll get a little more specific into the actions of Private First Class Aaron's. Now, December 7, 1941, Japan attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor. The following day, the United States declared war on Japan. So that happened fast. But what's next? It takes a long time to mobilize, train, equip, deploy forces anywhere, let alone, you know, as far away as some of these islands in the Pacific or Europe at this point too, right? And while the United States was building up for war, Japan continued to move. They expanded their footprint in a few areas and in others kind of solidified their defensive positions in anticipation of an American, of an allied counterattack. That doesn't mean that everything stopped. I mean, we can do more than one thing at once, right? So the Doolittle Raid, the famous Doolittle Raid, where 16 bombers took off from an aircraft carrier in the Pacific to bomb mainland Japan, kind of a um, kind of a revenge move, if you will, a morale move, happened in April of 1942. And then by June of 1942, we had the Battle of Midway, a major American victory in the Pacific. And by the time August comes around, we can finally say we're ready, kind of, for ground offensive. Now, at this point in the war, and this point at this place in the war, it's going to be the Marines. In World War II, we saw a split between the Army and the Marines in terms of areas of responsibility. The Army would go to Europe. The Marines would go to the Pacific. Now, another way to look at this is all of the Marines, generally speaking, were in the Pacific, but not everyone fighting in the Pacific were Marines. The Army had quite a few divisions. I want to say over 20 divisions by the end of the war fighting in the Pacific. And there's some kind of, you know, there's a couple ways to look at this that make a lot of sense, but there's also some fun stories tied to this. I saw something recently where there was an argument that, you know, high level politicking that the army didn't want the Marines in Europe because they thought the Marines would steal all their glory. And I happen to think there's a few logistical reasons that it makes more sense to send the Marines to the Pacific. But even with that, I got to think that the glory at this point in the war, early 1942, doesn't everybody want to take on Japan? You know, the, the revenge for Pearl Harbor? I don't know. It's a fun story, and there's actually some folks have written up on that and, uh, and have spent some time diving into how, you know, the politics of that played in. But nonetheless, the Marines would go to the Pacific. A couple major reasons for that. At this point in the conflict, at this point in the war, 
the Allies had landed on a Germany first strategy or Europe first strategy, which meant that the bulk of resources, men and equipment went to that theater. And the idea was, let's take care of Nazi Germany. And when that's complete, we can shift all of our resources over to the Pacific. At this time in 1942, the army was about 3 million strong and the Marines were just shy of 150,000. So if we're talking about where do your resources go, it makes sense that the larger group is going to go, go to Europe, right? But then the other little aspect here is the Pacific is going to be one amphibious operation after another, landing on beach after beach after beach, you know, tied in very, very closely with the Navy. There were amphibious landings in Europe, in North Africa and Italy, and of course on Normandy and then Southern France. But the coordination with the Navy wouldn't be, you know, an ongoing theme throughout like it would be in the Pacific. So makes sense. Marines need to have that fight in the army. Once we get on land in, in Europe, there's not going to be, the army's going to do what army does, right? So that makes sense. But anyways, if we look at the war at a high level, what's expected in both theaters is that we're going to eventually have to get to the, you know, the main country. We're going to have to get to in the Pacific, Japan. We're going to have to topple the Japanese government in order for this war to end. In order to get there, we're going to have to create some stepping stones because it's too far away. It's too far, too far from the United States, even too far from Hawaii in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. We can't just put together some massive armada and, and sail west and, and stop outside of mainland Japan and, and have at it, right? The, the aircraft carriers, battleships, cruisers would be picked apart across the open ocean as we got further and further into the Japanese defenses hard to resupply. We need, we need these stepping stones. We need areas where we can resupply men, materials, equipment, forward refueling stations, airfields for, you know, bomber and fighter support all throughout. So we're going to have to take one after the other kind of slow and deliberate steps in certain directions or in, you know, towards Japan. The strategy adopted is one of island hopping. Island hopping generally means we're going to take some islands that are strategic in nature and hop over others. We don't have to take every island just because there's a Japanese soldier there. We only need to take certain ones. We're going to look in two areas. They're kind of the Pacific's broken down into two areas in this regard. You have the Central Pacific. This makes, you know, when we talk about the Marshall Islands or the Marianas, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, that's the Central Pacific. And then we have the Southwest Pacific that we're going to get into a little bit today with the Solomon Islands moving up through the Philippines. Both were designed to come together at Japan. Kind of two different complementary strategies, maybe is a way to put it. To me, when I look at the island hopping campaign, I think of, you know, like a red or a card that's red on one side, green on the other, or whatever the colors might be. The idea being that these islands that we were targeting were strategic for the Japanese. So we had to remove them from that island to remove that advantage. But we also took them because they'd be strategic for us, right? So things like deep water ports, airfields, or just their location. We, they couldn't have it. We needed to have it. So it's kind of a one or the other game with a lot of these. The Solomon Islands fit the bill in terms of strategic nature for a couple different reasons. The Solomons sit almost like a shield, on the outside or in the outskirts of Australia, which means that they could 
any Japanese force there in the Solomon Islands could really hamper the U.S. and Australian partnership, blocking any sort of shipping or or, or aircraft movement between you know the American territories up near um, Hawaii and then Australia and New Zealand. The deep water ports there could cut off shipping, and the airfields on these islands could could strike Australia, but could also strike any American moves you know later through the Central Pacific. So putting together a plan to go through the Solomon Islands, the Allies come up with something codenamed Operation Pestilence, or the codename for the operation is Pestilence, with three objectives. They're going to focus on the Santa Cruz Islands, a little tiny island known as Tulagi, and probably an island called Florida. Florida overlooks Tulagi, much, much bigger, but right between Florida and Tulagi is a nice port that can be utilized within the Solomon Island chain. Guadalcanal which I didn't mention, wasn't named as first. It was in the category of other objectives in and around the area. Eventually, the operation of Guadalcanal would be codenamed Watchtower. And they didn't even, the Allies didn't even have this on the radar until, well, that's not the right way to say it. It wasn't a priority until the Allies identified airfields being built on Guadalcanal, which that's kind of crazy if you think about it, right? I mean, we don't you know, the major battles in American military history aren't the Battle of Florida Island or even Tulagi that we're going to talk about today. It's Guadalcanal. But just a few months before Marines landed on the island, it was considered an afterthought. That's wild. The war in the Pacific wasn't the priority, as we mentioned before. The Germany first, Europe first strategy meant that the Marines and the Navy and the Army that are, when you know, by the time they get out there, we're going to have to make do with what they had. And it kind of hurts to say that because these are, these are Americans going into combat and they may or may not have had the resources they deserved. Some of these men went into combat with outdated weapons. You know, a handful of Marines landed on Guadalcanal with 1903 Springfields. Those are bolt-action rifles, not even the M1 carbine that would be, you know, widely used across the U.S. military. Rations were reduced. At one point, they said, well, make sure that every Marine has 90 days rations, and then you blink, and now it's 60. That matters. That really matters. And, and many went ashore with a 10-day supply of ammunition or less. They just didn't have it. And this is one of the things that's interesting to me when you get into you know, specifically the Guadalcanal campaign in the Pacific. You know, Later in the war, in the Pacific theater especially, Japan would lose the ability to reinforce islands. They would essentially be on the defensive. Their Navy and Air Force would have taken such a beating that by the time we kind of had an armada around an island, that was it. We were going to take the island. It was just a matter of how many lives it was going to cost and how long it was going to take. Many, many of the battles later in the Pacific were determined before they started. Again, just a matter of how deadly it would be. What would the cost be? That wasn't the case on Guadalcanal. For almost the entire duration of this campaign, it could have gone either way. And it's interesting because you think about at this time in the war, you know, if we, let's look to Europe, for instance. Germany early in the war was, was moving fast, hard and fast, right? They had all of their equipment. Production was on point. It would be later in the war, after they'd taken a beating and been bombed for years and, and suffered losses on the Eastern Front, you know, staggering losses on the Eastern Front, then their equipment started to dwindle and they couldn't put up the resistance. Maybe they could have a few years prior. It's kind of flipped here in the Pacific. 
it's not that the U.S. war machine is falling off track. It's that we haven't really gotten going yet. It's, you know, again, this stuff takes time and to equip the entire military as needed takes time. And we're just not there by August of 1942. Add to that, and this is an interesting theme we'll hit on a few times during this, during this series, we don't have any real experience yet, right? I mean, we have troops that have fought in ground combat with Japanese soldiers on, you know, in the Philippines, for instance, not a lot of them came out of there alive. Um, certainly not a lot made it back to share their stories by August of 1942. We're a new army. I mean, many of these senior leaders would have fought in other conflicts, including World War One, but it's kind of it. So there's going to be some mistakes made and lessons learned throughout the campaign on Guadalcanal that'll go a long way later in the war. Now, over time, the, the Guadalcanal campaign kind of solidified with a timeline and they were moving as fast as they could. I mean, they did... I think one rehearsal, one rehearsal before this operation kicked off. There was a joke. Some of the Marines and sailors referred to it as Operation Shoestring, I think is what it was. Just you know, doing it on a shoestring budget, if you will. Eventually, the date is narrowed down. And on August 7th, 1942, the Allied Armada, U.S. and at least Australian ships, may have been a few others, enter the channel between Guadalcanal and the Florida Island under cloud cover, which is important. It means they've, they've gone undetected. They've essentially arrived right off the shore of Guadalcanal without the Japanese recognizing. The Allied ships and planes start hammering targets on a couple of these different islands where Marines are scheduled to land. And in the early morning hours, they start loading their landing craft to make the trek to shore. Now, to start in Guadalcanal, this is going to be the responsibility of the 1st Marine Division under Major General Alexander Vandegrift. The Marines are split into two transport groups because remember, it's not just Guadalcanal. There's going to be a couple other islands hit as well. Transport Group X-Ray would head towards Guadalcanal and Transport Group Yoke would split off and head towards Tulagi, Gavutu, Tanabogo, which I probably didn't pronounce right, and Florida. And some of these Islands would have just, you know, tiny, tiny numbers of Marines landing there if we didn't think the Japanese presence was too fierce. Now, this is where the unique nature of island fighting comes into play. So if you look at the landings on Guadalcanal, you know, right 22 miles away from Tulagi, I mean, they're just across the channel from each other. The landings on Guadalcanal run opposed for the most part. I mean, there was slight opposition, but nothing like, you know, Let's talk D-Day, right? I mean, that was a heavily contested landing. That is not the case at Guadalcanal. In fact, the issue at Guadalcanal as they're coming ashore is, is the beaches are getting clogged up because there's so many men and equipment being unloaded at one time. I mean, there's there's a little bit of Japanese fire, but they set in a defensive perimeter, and, and by the next day, they've pushed a few miles inland and have secured the airfield. I mean, massive gains quickly on Guadalcanal. But 22 miles away... As mentioned, on the tiny island of Tulagi, it was a different story. This is where PFC Edward Ahrens and the men of Alpha Company, well, the men of the 1st Raider Battalion, along with the 2nd Battalion 5th Marines, were scheduled to land. Tulagi is a small island, two miles long by, at times, you know, well, I'll say on average, about 700 meters wide. Two miles long, 700 meters wide. It's tiny. It runs generally northwest to southeast, kind of a long, thin island. And again, remember, Tulagi sat over a harbor. 
that was important strategic to the Japanese. It was important strategic for the United States. As the Allied aircraft began bombarding targets in these very different, the aircraft and ships hit a couple different targets on these islands, Aaron's and the men of Alpha Company 1st Raider Battalion load their craft and head towards Tulagi. Now, the Raider Battalions were designed within the Marines, were designed as kind of a special operations force. The, the best comparison that I have in this period of time would be the U.S. Army Rangers that are utilized, well, in a wide variety of, of ways, but that we saw just in our most recent series um, used in a couple of ways during the D-Day landings. They fit that bill because they are highly trained, right? They're specialized troops, but very often the Raiders were used as traditional infantry, which is the case here. They're going to come ashore. Um, the 1st Raider Battalion comes ashore right next to the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. Again, two infantry units, two battalions. They land on what's called the Blue Beach on the western edge of Tulagi. It's small. It's like a 500 wide, 500 meter wide long beach. Again, think back to D-Day. We're talking about five miles on Omaha Beach. And, and now we're hitting 500 meters. So the waters were calm enough. The weather wasn't such that they got pushed off, off course. But they do hit a coral reef about 100 meters from shore and are forced to wade the rest of the way in. You know, in some cases, in later battles, that could be a death wish. But at Tulagi, the bombardment was such from the aircraft and the naval vessels that many of the Japanese on the island were still taking cover. They hadn't come back out yet to you know man their defensive positions. Once ashore, the idea is for the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines to sweep left. Aaron's and the men of the 1st Raider Battalion are set to sweep right. So they're kind of landing, not quite in the middle of the island, but close. And they're going to push out in each direction. And look, it's only 800 meters across at points. So an entire battalion, they're almost on line, right? Shoulder to shoulder, sweeping through, clearing off the entire island. They're able to push inland, kind of cutting the island in half relatively easily. From there, you know, 2-5 pushes left. First Raiders start to push right with the various companies kind of stacked, again, almost shoulder to shoulder. They have sporadic Japanese resistance, but it's not a whole lot, but they do have to stop by nightfall. They've kind of reached, you know, a limit of advance. They're going to wait until morning to continue the advance and, and, you know, sweep the rest of the island, clear the remaining Japanese fighters. There's, they're, they anticipate that there's at least a few more there. They don't think the job is done, but now we enter the night of August 7th, 1942. The Japanese were proficient in night fighting. This is something they trained. Not to say that the United States didn't, but there's some differences here. The Japanese trained heavily in this because they felt that it helped to overcome some of the firepower disadvantages, especially when it came to Allied aircraft or the cruisers and destroyers that would would shell the or you know fire in support of the Marines on shore. But they also, you know, claimed that. A big advantage here was the Japanese fighting spirit, right? Able to fight and die in the dead of night. A challenge with night fighting is not knowing where your lines are and where the enemy lines are. So the U.S. military tends to fight more in units, squads, platoons, companies. The Japanese military did as well, but they were much more willing to send one man or two or five just straight into an American formation. 
And it wasn't so much that they had to stay in touch with their squad mates as it was just overrun the position and kill. That means that the night fight for the Japanese is a little more in their wheelhouse, maybe is the way I would say. And they were good at it. Often these night, these, these you know, night actions would result in hand-to-hand combat. And it was just terrifying. Think about that. The sun goes down in a foreign land. You're dug into your foxhole, keeping watch. Every little sound, you have to wonder, is that a Japanese soldier attacking? Around 10.30 at night on August 7th, the Japanese attack. Private First Class Aarons was in a security detachment monitoring the flank of the entire Raider Battalion. And the Japanese hit so hard that the lines were nearly completely overrun. The, the battalions essentially split in half. They hit in a couple different areas. Where Aaron sits, if he doesn't hold on because he's on the flank, if he and his men can't hold the line, the entire Raider Battalion could be rolled up. I mean, it exposes weak points in the organization that could be devastating. What they're experiencing is something that the Allies would call often a bonsai charge. It's not, it's often billed as a suicide attack, and there's going to be some battles later in the war, namely Saipan, where these charges would essentially be suicide. They would, Japanese soldiers would charge sometimes with sticks, um, machine gun positions, and, and that's, that, that's suicide, right? But really what a bonsai charge was, was a human wave attack. So it's designed to overwhelm a defense. If you think about it, if there's one machine gun position and 20 guys stand up in line and charge, the machine gunner might kill 18 of them, but two could get through. I mean, it's not so easy at close range to mow down that many enemy soldiers when they're charging fast. You expect them to take cover. You expect them to stop and crawl and, and, and avoid the machine gun fire. But just the odds of one or two getting through could knock out that machine gun, could knock out that position, could overrun the lines. That was the essence of a bonsai charge. Break a hole in the lines, kind of roll up the enemy, roll up the Americans from, from within them. On the night of August 7th, confusion reigned. I mean, this is essentially the first combat for many, many of these Marines, and it's happening at night. It had to be absolutely terrifying. Over and over again in these bonsai charges, the fighting would come down to you know, individual fights for survival. And the 140-pound Private Aarons held his ground. As the enemy poured over, he pulled multiple Japanese fighters into hand-to-hand combat as the fighting raged throughout the night. Again, this wasn't one big wave that just swept over and then the fighting was done. It was probing attacks. They would come and go, move down the line, attack again. Aaron's position was hit multiple times throughout the night, but he held on. As the sun came up the next morning, August 8, 1942, Major Lou Walt, the company commander for Alpha Company of the 1st Raider Battalion, started to walk his line figure out where he needed to reinforce, how his men were doing, check the wounded, the killed, etc. Eventually, he came to Private First Class Aarons. He found him slumped in his foxhole, covered in blood, head to his foot, absolutely covered. In the foxhole with Aarons sat a dead Japanese lieutenant and a dead Japanese sergeant with 11 more dead Japanese soldiers right around his foxhole. And in his hands, 
Aaron's held the sword from that dead Japanese officer. He was mortally wounded. Um, Multiple gunshot and stab wounds he sustained in those hours and hours of hand-to-hand fighting. And as he lay there, Private Aaron's, Private First Class Aaron's looked up, the 22-year-old young kid, looked up to his commander and said, quote, the idiot tried to come over me last night. I guess they didn't know I was a Marine. How about that? Aaron's would die from his wounds shortly thereafter and would be awarded the Navy Cross for his actions that night. Brutal attacks like this would become all too common across the Pacific. And we're just on day one of the first offensive action. There's a lot to come. Like the first major fight on the island of Guadalcanal. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.